said to me, Rook, you want to make it in this league, you got to be able to laugh at yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was like, yeah, it's one of those statements that when you're 22 years old, you're kind of thinking, well, I kind of think if I can get to the basket, I'm going to make it in this league. You know, if I can make threes, I'm going to make it in this league. But then you're like, I, something struck a chord with me. And I was like, I get that. I get why. Like, your ability to assimilate to a situation, to a group, to work with other people, to disarm them, to show them that it's not all about you, to not be insular or, you know, or me first. Like there's so many ancillary qualities that come off of just being able to be self-deprecating and laugh at yourself. In my opinion, today's guest is the best floor general and sports playmaker of all time. He told me he was always an underdog, but his most valuable skill has been resiliency. He picked up entrepreneurship during his MVP seasons. He certainly has a Hall of Fame caliber NBA career. Today, he wears multiple hats. He's a consultant for the Golden State Warriors. He's the GM of Canada's National Hoops team, part of the ownership group for the Vancouver Whitecaps and RCD Mallorca. He is a social activist and a philanthropist for his foundation. I wore my hair long because Steve Nash did. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is a show where I dive into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. And I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York with Team USA. I'm also an entrepreneur and an investor. Enjoy my conversation with one of my favorite athletes of all time, Steve Nash. Thank you for being such a gracious host at your place here in Manhattan Beach. Pleasure. It's It's amazing. We drove by and we're like, wow, this is the life. (laughs) Like the water is spectacular today. The sun is out. I mean, do you get a chance every morning to just wake up and breathe in and meditate? Yeah. You know what? I, I don't meditate very frequently. Um, I I have periodically, I have the perfect place to meditate. I haven't taken you up top yet, but we have great views and, um, it's, it's definitely a special calm place especially before the kids wake up in the morning and I, I should take advantage of it more but as you know like that's like the hardest thing is making time for everything in the day for kids now and uh, usually I defer like I'd rather go in the basement and work out instead of meditate and I think sometimes I gotta reassess that strategy yeah find a little more balance yeah so we're in the basement now we'll definitely make our way up after the pod because uh, the views look spectacular but our entire team is here so just trying to paint the picture for our listeners and there's a lot of cameras everywhere. And, and the group that I brought is Colin and Samir, who are close friends and business partners of mine. And uh, formerly at Whistle Sports, they sold TLN to Whistle Sports. And Whistle Sports put out a video hosted by Alan Stein narrating your back-to-back MVP year. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called The Thermometer versus The Thermostat, I Steve did, I Nash. Didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> so it's a wonderful video, and I'll walk you through it, and we'll start there. Uh, I often use those back-to-back MVPs as speeches referencing you to my teammates. Mm. So I've done it with Team USA, I've done it with the New York Lizards. And, and the way it goes is it, you know, a thermometer tells temperature, a thermostat sets the temperature. And it goes, Steve Nash is the thermostat of the mm. NBA. And in his back-to-back MVP years, he led the league in two statistical categories. You're probably going to remember the second one. The first was assists. The second one was issued research by Cal State uh, Berkeley, which was measuring the number of touches you would have or any player would have an entire game. And the touches were fist bumps, handshakes, pats on the back, uh, just basically acknowledgments of encouragement. And they brought on an intern to 
qualify yours. Um, and they came back with, on average, 239 touches per game. So when we're going through lulls or, or we're looking for an energy spike or you're in the middle of the monotony of a season, often that encouragement is so integral to the team's culture and, and success. So you led in your MVP years in the NBA, assists and touches. And so I wanted to start by, I've always wanted to have this conversation with you. What is your general philosophy as a player who's had such a long career and a successful one? Well, I mean, I think the, there's a couple things at, at work, but the first thing is always your personality, you know, the way you're wired. And part of that's nature and part of that's nurture. But um, I was definitely, I am definitely wired as a people pleaser. Um, you know, I, I avoid conflict. So like, I'm trying to get out some of the negatives that have built my success, Yeah. you know, things that I could have been more cognizant of. Um, but they were important building blocks to what I was really good at, which was, you know, bringing people together, making it fun for people, making them feel included and important. Um, hopefully making the game easier for them and, and going back to other sports as a kid, you know, I, and I, a part of that is my nature. And a part of that was my dad, you know, he was, my dad played soccer, played, I guess, semi-pro, but played at a good level. And, you know, he was just the type of guy that he he just valued things that I think were rare for most parents. Like, yes, I think a lot of parents will value, like, you know, your characteristics of being accountable, being on time, being a good teammate, being, um, you know, a good sportsman, um, all those things. But he also valued a different set of, um, I don't know, it was like a different reward system for me. A lot of, can I've talked about this before, but like, you know, you play with your, you know, for example, if I scored three goals in a soccer game as a yeah. kid, he, we'd get in the car and he wouldn't be like three goals. Like that was awesome. He'd be like, you remember that time when you had a shot on goal and you drew the defense and you pass it to your teammate for an open shot. He's like, that was fantastic. Yep. So my value system when trying to impress my dad was always to be clever and witty and think ahead and make my teammates succeed. And so I think that was a part of adding with my personality of being a pleaser and wanting, wanting everyone to enjoy this and everyone to have fun and everyone to succeed, yep. you know, adding to that, you know, the, the, the reinforcements I got for him were important. And, you know, even in the backyard, my dad tells a story that, you know, my brother and I would play soccer with him. If we tried to dribble him, he'd kick us. If we tried to play a one, two around him, he'd let us go, you know? So he was always reinforcing, yep. you know, you, be a t good team player, make the right decisions, you know, those type of things. So uh, that I think was pivotal. Was he uh, pivotal as well in helping you choose sports as you were younger? One of the commonalities that we share, at least for you and ultimately choosing basketball and going along there and me and lacrosse is that neither of us started playing that specific mm. sport until we were 12 or 13 yeah. or in middle school. You sure. grew up playing soccer and ice hockey. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how were you led or, or well, directed? He was pivotal in that he was open to letting me do what I wanted to do and he was encouraging for us to do every sport so my first word was goal because my dad was a soccer player I played soccer as a kid I played hockey I played baseball I played box lacrosse um, I played all the school sports in season um, so I was playing everything and he was supportive of all those things and then you know as, as you get a little older things change a little bit I got to the eighth grade at a new school and all, all the kids all the jocks so to speak um, that were out, outside playing all day were playing basketball and it was also when Michael Jordan kind of jumped on the scene and when him yeah. and Spike Lee were doing commercials. So it was a pretty romantic time to be a young basketball player. 
And, uh, and that was kind of it. I wanted to be with my friends instead mm-hmm. of off traveling with the soccer and hockey team every weekend. Um, so he, but I think he, in, in his heart of hearts, he was, he was sad that I stopped playing soccer, Yeah. but he also knew like this, it's not, it's not his life. Yeah. And, and how did you know though? Cause I think parents yeah. probably ask you that. They ask sure. me that question. You know, the reality is, is that the soccer and hockey, um, I, w- I wasn't with my friends and there was a lot of traveling away. So it wasn't just I had to go to a game. I had to travel to it. So I missed a weekend of my friends playing pickup basketball all over town. Um, and now at that age, it was just too pivotal. And I think for soccer, it was tough because there just wasn't like that aspirational environment. Like I wasn't growing up in England, you know, or mm-hmm. Mexico or yeah. wherever where like you have people to aspire to be. You have a league that's like, you know, pervasive and everywhere you know it was kind of like yeah there's leagues elsewhere but in your community in your culture it's kind of secondary so you know that that gap was too big to like motivate me whereas basketball was like kind of growing and growing in Canada and you know you had like I said Michael Jordan and college hoops and there was a great college team in my hometown for the Canadian level and a great coach and so it just all of it just pointed to it was much more immediate and intimate and inspiring for me to be playing basketball when I was in the eighth grade. Yeah, and and I was just working with a bunch of kids here. It's why we're sitting here in L.A. at an at a Rabel Tour event, and we do this Q and A afterwards. And many of them asked me, and it dawned on me I didn't quite know the answer to it, which was when you were playing lacrosse, Paul, competitively, was your goal to play professionally, and even before that, was your goal to play in college? And being honest with myself, it was it really wasn't my goals were to be the best player that I could be. And that was often the best player on the team and the best player on the field in the district. Mm-hmm. And then the next level followed suit. Sure. Basketball was different though from just hearing you and me experiencing that as well. Growing up playing basketball is that like the NBA was on television and that was very pervasive. As you mm-hmm. said, lacrosse wasn't. So for you, did you pick up the sport and say like, I want to play in the NBA and was your goal set to that? Or was it just, Hey, I'm exploring and I want to be great. Yeah, I think um, I think I definitely had dreams, you know. But you're right. I mean, I think growing up in a small town on the west coast of Canada, you you know, the NBA is a long ways away. You know, I mean, it's yeah. two hours down the I, you know, across the border to Seattle, but it's a long way away because I didn't see people in my neighborhood playing in the NBA. So there was a jump to be made there, but. So at first, I wanted to be the best with my buddies in my friend's driveway, you know, and then yep. the best on the team, and then the best in the city and province, and, and you know, eventually you start making the junior national team and stuff like that. So it's like this natural progression, but it all comes from just having a crazy passion for the game, like yeah. wanting to play it at all hours, every spare moment, and, you know, being obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And, and when you find that obsession, the, the bigger goals and dreams just keep naturally progressing as well. Um, and one of the moments that had a big impact on me was there was a, the starting point guard for the national team's name was Eli Pasquale and he was the last cut on the Bulls and the Sonics. He played five years at the University of Victoria in my hometown. Um, and I was working his basketball camp, you know, and Eli's a great guy who was this close to an NBA career, played in Europe for a long time. But, you know, I mean, he's, I coached his basketball camp for little kids when I was in summer going into my senior year he's driving me home and you know not a very fancy car you yeah. know what i mean and here's a guy who was that close to to playing in the nba and he asked me he's like what are your goals he's like do you want to play in the nba and i was like yeah and i was like you know really at the time my goal was to play division one basketball in the states but he's like do you want to play in the nba and i was like yeah of course i do and he's like well if you're serious about that you should you should decide that now 
And I think what he was saying is declare your intention, you know, like mm-hmm. put it out there and make yourself accountable to it. I wasn't quite, I, I, I don't think I had enough exper- life experience to know that's what he meant, but I knew in a, in a broad sense, what he meant was like, go for it. Like admit, you know, like admit to yourself, that's what you want to do and go for it. I was the last cut on two NBA teams and I didn't decide I want to play in the NBA until my fifth year of university. Right, so he's like, if I had decided when I was your age, I can't help but think I would have raised my game like that much to make the difference. And so I understood that part of it, but I think the deeper, you know, part of it is like declaring your intentions is really powerful. Whether you say them out loud, write them down, you know, put a a, a tangible plan or goal or or vision out there, you know, now you're accountable to something that's that's tangible and, and important to you that you know that you can develop an intimacy with. Right? Yeah. Whereas if it's just kind of like I don't know. You know, I just, I just want to yeah, play. I hope that, you know, that, that leaves a lot to fall by the wayside, a mm-hmm. lot of doubt. It, it might take 5% of the edge off of you every day. Right. Instead of that, like, um, you know, that immediacy of training every day and trying to get better and striving for something, you might be 5% less yeah. focused on it. Uh, and that could be the difference, especially if you're like a six, one and a half point yeah. guard from the West coast of Canada. Yeah. And, I'll add to this because I, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the past three or four years with a sports psychologist, mm-hmm. John Elliott, um, who spent some time in the NBA. And uh, I've learned from a psychology standpoint why it's so difficult to have that intention, as you mentioned, is because there's a high likelihood that we're going to fail at it. And so often by human nature, we're more likely to just acquiesce to comfort than to lean into something as ambitious as playing mm-hmm. in the NBA and making that goal, setting that goal for yourself and realizing that you may not make it, how are you going to deal with it? Mm-hmm. There's many things in life and in business where we avoid setting that ambition as strictly as you did as a goal because there's a greater likelihood that we're not going to yeah. get it. And that requires uh, an ability sure. to, to, to learn from that loss. Yeah. And, and that's uncomfortable. Well, I think it's important. Two things are important. If one is is to recognize that, especially like if it is an out, an outsized goal, that people are probably going to be negative or tear you down, and some of them will do it because of their own shortcomings. Some of them will do it because they don't want to see you hurt. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think you have to be careful with who you admit it to. Yep. You can be brash if you have the guts to do so and say, "I'm going to do this," and let people take it or leave it. Yeah. But you can also just say it to yourself, write it down in your notebook, make a plan that you're accountable to. You know, I remember being a freshman at Santa Clara and there was a junior on our team who was a very good player, talented athlete. And we was before the season. I'm this skinny white point guard from Canada. Um, and we were running the bleachers and the pre like on our own in preseason. And we sat down after it's hot and we're sweating. And, you know, it's probably like dinner time and, He's like, you know, we're talking about our goals and, and, and he says he wants to play in the NBA. And like from the, from the outside, you know, we're talking about a 6'6 athlete who could shoot and dribble a little bit. And, you know, he has a chance, right? right. And then there's this, this skinny kid who's like underwhelming from Canada. And I'm like, yeah, me too. I, I would really like to play in the NBA. And, I mean, he did the kindest thing, which was, is, was hold that smile to a minimum, you know? <laughs> but I could see it. I could see yeah. that. To him, it was like uh, one of those moments where he's like, this kid's got to be kidding me, but it's sweet. I'll let him get away with it, you know? Yeah. Um, and well, so- We see a lot of kids um, that, that are highly skilled. And I was just having this conversation the other day with my brother, 
and I see it more than ever, frankly. You take all the All-Americans in high school across right now, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, each one of them were more skilled than I was when I was mm-hmm. their age. Mm-hmm. It's probably similar in, in basketball and to a certain extent. Sure. So there's some of these guys can jump out of the gym sure. now. Um, so it's not really about skill. It's mm-hmm. about endurance, but mm-hmm. some type of grit. What mm-hmm. are some things is you work a lot with kids, mm-hmm. and, and you also train some of the top players in the world, like a Kevin Durant in the offseason. So what is that it? Have you ever been able to mm. see it? Is it something that yeah. that you can see? I don't think it's really skill. Sure. No, I definitely think, well, just an anecdote is, so Barcelona, the soccer yep. team, has a, a, a very famous academy called La Masia, and they develop players. Leo Messi went there, he was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. He was in the same class as Fabregas, Pique. You know, there was a bunch, a handful of guys that yep. made it to the very top, won the World Cup. Sergio and, Busquets. Yeah. Busquets uh, might have been one more in that class that all either one of the Andres Spain, Iniesta maybe or he's a little bit could, older could, could be a year uh, yeah ahead of them yeah. but anyways yes they're all from this this incredible academy and and they say that the most consistent predictor of success is resilience hmm. which is great you know I mean there's many words that can slightly vary the connotation or or what it, what it is but it's it's grit it's resilience is the biggest predictor of success so you know that's a muscle and that's a muscle that needs to be developed and you can be born with great grit and resilience but you have to continually develop that muscle as well um that is the biggest predictor of success now if you're 6'10", 6'11", can shoot and dribble like Kevin Durant, you know, maybe the balance, you know, you don't need quite as much grit because you've got so much ability, but, you know, Kevin Durant's still a guy and LeBron James are still guys that have this incredible talent, but they also have the grit and determination to enjoy the plateaus, to, you know, keep working and find joy in the training. Um, There's a lot of guys that when you get that suspension of gratification, when you're taking thousands of jump shots and you're not improving, you're staying the same or you're questioning why you're doing this, you have to have faith in the process and keep going. And I think there's a lot of guys that are like, well, I'm already a pretty good shooter. I'm shooting, why would I shoot a few hundred extras like right. to make one more shot a game? And if that's the way you think, you have no chance. No chance. You're, or at least you've presented a ceiling. You know. So the, the ones that have intelligence, uh, and and perseverance and resilience, grit, whatever you want to call it, those are the ones that have a chance to be special and that can reach their maximum, right? Yeah. And that's what it's really about is reaching your maximum, your, you know, your optimum performance level. And that's an I- I- immovable ingredient for me is, pers- is resilience or grit. Yep. yep. Obsessiveness in your practices. Do you remember anything specifically? Uh, you know, growing up, my, my dad uh, is from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and, and it's always basketball, basketball, basketball mm-hmm. first. And I remember hearing about, you mentioned the thousands of shots that Larry Bird would take mm-hmm. and Michael Jordan would take in practice. And I almost threw my shoulder out because the motion's different in lacrosse because mm-hmm. I would try to yeah. get to a thousand, but sure. we're throwing really hard and, and basketball is a different right. motion. Uh, but specifically for you, as you became very obsessive around your practices, mm-hmm. would you ever quantify your work or was it mainly just playing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I try to do is count my makes. You know, and, and nowadays I think kids, it's a different era. So kids are, um, everything's programmed. You know, you have a skills coach, you know, you, you either pay for or that works with you because you're good. You have your team coach. Your S&C, your physical yeah. therapist, nutritionist. Everything's programmed. You know, in, in my day growing up, I went to the, to be honest with you, until I was well into my 30s before I would train with someone else. Like having someone even rebound for me. Like hmm. in the summers, I'd go to the, I was, 
in my 30s playing in the NBA and I'd be in Phoenix, Arizona in the summer and I'd be shooting in my driveway at a park, you know, just so I don't have to drive down to the arena and could get a couple extra hundred makes in, you know. Um, you know, I'd go down in the morning and work out, but so that I didn't have to go back, I'd find a park by my house or the driveway and get up, you know, another couple hundred makes. But I always try to count my makes because it's a, it's a successful quantity instead of just an arbitrary quantity. Like if, if I want to make... If I want to take a few hundred shots, what's the point of it if you're not focusing in and trying to make the most of every one? So I would be like, okay, I got 20 minutes. I'm going to go in the driveway and make 100. I Before practice, I'd make 150. After practice, I'd make 150. When I was a kid, it was more, you know, when I was younger. But I, I always tried to measure my makes because that obviously heightened your focus rather than, hey, I, I, I planned out a workout. I got my 500 shots up, and who knows how many you made. You know, I was yeah. like, I walk off the court when I've made. I've succeeded 200 times, you know, so I really like that. I never thought about it in way of makes. I like the height and focus and I used to, I call it competitive, adding a layer of competition Mm -hmm. because it brings the best out Mm -hmm. of us. And I often use the clock, as you mentioned, 20 Mm -hmm. minutes to make a 100 really gets you focused thinking about form, thinking about makes. And, Mm -hmm. and then the the, the follow-up then to that would be, where do you land on like traditional athlete superstitions or like, did you always have to make a shot before you left the court? No, I mean, I would pretty much, but it yeah. wasn't like, so like if I Where didn't, that even come yeah, from? exactly. If I didn't, it wasn't like going to break my psyche. I, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was just kind of like fun to make the last shot, but yeah. you know, it's not the end of the world. I wasn't superstitious. Cause um, I think that in a way, as I've challenged myself, I did it in everything. Yeah. I can't leave the court unless right. I can make. And that was a, a, a real weakness, actually, yeah. in my mindset. Because during a game, when things didn't go well, right. that's when you react. Yeah. Because you don't have to control to sure. extend the clock or get another layup chance, per se. Sure. I heard someone say once that the brain builds maps. you know, And, and, and that's not necessarily always a positive thing. So you've <laughs> built this framework that you have to make your last shot instead of being satisfied with the work you did. Right? You, you had a great workout. You did everything you could have asked for. And now you're worried about, you're focusing on a last shot. Like, okay, there's scenarios where maybe that's positive, but overall you can make the argument that, you know, you're, you're creating this silly little paradigm at the end of a great training session about one shot that's taking the focus from all that work you just did that should not only be ingrained in your repetition and your muscle memory, but it should also be in your mind. Like I just banked, you know, 200 excellent makes, right? Yep. And I moved well, I focused, I made those shots. To, to almost like disregard all that and worry about the last shot is... It's kind of a, a strange way of looking at things, but and that's those are the maps that you want to be clear of. Here's to sleeping well on a great mattress and our show sponsor, Mattress Firm. Everyone should know by now, if you listen to this podcast, how important recovery is through sleep. Everyone should also know how important stretching is before an event. And so does Mattress Firm, except they're stretching your dollar. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store where it's an easy win and you play make it, take it with every night's rest. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and even bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up and ready for the best night of your life. That's real. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening. They're mega and are changing as often as I read these ads. One constant, though, that you can bet on is they offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. You cannot beat it. 
Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Back to your resilience and, uh, and then getting recruited. Uh, your, your Santa Clara coach said that um, he was lucky when he got a chance to, to watch you play that very few of his peers were watching you as well, and he was really nervous that you were going to get an offer somewhere else. And, and so you end up going to play there, set all-time records in the assist category, free throw percentage, and then attempts and made three-pointers. Um, when, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the lessons you've learned playing college versus mm-hmm. pro. Uh, but for me, when I'm, when, from what I know about you and, and looking at those records, assists, we all know, and you even saying how important pleasing and sharing the ball is, Free throws, from my perspective, jumped off as like, this person knows how to prepare and also understands the controllables. Mm. And nothing is more controlled than a free throw Mm. in the run of play of hoops. So you're saying, if I'm going to get a chance to make a free throw, let me be the best at that that I can be. That was that was kind of clear, and then the three pointers is maybe around more of the ingenuity sure. and like the additive layer of putting an extra sure. point on the board and like yeah. let me be good there. Am I overthinking this no. thing, or is you just playing no, ball and that, you have no, these records? That's fair. I mean, I, I looked at it like, at like if I can shoot, if I make every free throw, I'm helping my team. Yeah. Right. If I make ninety eight percent or ninety two percent or eighty nine percent tonight, that might afford a teammate who has an off night for us to you know absorb that. So. And I think to a fault, like I was, I was efficient. Like I didn't like to take a lot of shots. I tried to be aggressive and more aggressive in the fourth quarter, but I didn't take a lot of shots because I kind of came from that traditional model of being a point guard, of getting your teammates involved and try to make your shots instead of take shots. So your teammates get more shots. So they're, they're happier and they're feeling more inspired and more a part of things. You know, nowadays I think we know more and look at the NBA. I think the reason the cycle is different. We have NBA guards that are all attacking, trying to score and put pressure on the defense because analytics. Analytically, analytically, it's so important. I think to, it's more important to have that, you know, in a number sense, to have those five guys attacking. If your point guard's your most shifty, skilled, explosive scorer, he needs to attack. I'd probably, to a fault, didn't, you know, if you look at it numerically. But I still believe there's something to be said for my team's loved playing together. Yep. You know, we had the best offense in the league for, I don't know, some, maybe 10 years uh, at one point. And, so, you know, times have evolved. I think there's a middle common ground and that I was, I was, there's something about the way I was doing it that, that holds value today. But there's also something about, you know, those common kind of traditional biases that, that need to be looked at and re-explored. When you were exploring your style of play, especially in college, which is from the, the public's perception, more coached than the mm-hmm. pro game. But certainly, given the reins to uh, showcase your skill and your your kind of your floor generalizing generalism, and uh, and so for you, was there a starting period before that? Was it you know Coach Davey that helped you along the way, or were you continuing to uncover mm-hmm. your skills as you got into the pro? Like what yeah. defined Steve Nash as a player? Yeah. Was you know, a moment? Yeah, no, I, I think I was always an underdog. You know, I had one scholarship offer to Santa Clara. And no, my, you know, he, he made that comment where he said, I just looked around and hoped no one was else, else was in the gym. And no one was. And I got a scholarship offer and that was it. I took my chance. I went down there. And, you know, I, I started my freshman year as like the backup point guard, played 10 minutes a game. 
you know, the, the starting point guard was a great college player, terrific defender, physical, quick. Um, he was a good playmaker, but couldn't shoot or he would have played in the NBA. And mm. he, he killed me every day in practice and pickup games before the season. I could barely get the ball up the court on him. For someone who was known everywhere I went for being a great ball handler, I, I just physically couldn't handle him. Huh. And so I would back him up. I played 10 minutes. I was underwhelming. And then at Christmas, he had a scope on his knee. So I started for two or three weeks and played really well. So when he came back, coach was like, we got to find more minutes for you. Um, and so I ended up playing 30 minutes a game the rest of the way, playing, you know, the backup one, the backup two, um, and moving around a little bit so I can get all those minutes. And then, you know, not to, not to pat myself on the back, but ended up being the conference tournament MVP. So in the span of four or five months, I went from playing to being a 10-minute-a-game backup point guard who was, like, taking one or two shots to having 27 points in the final game of the conference. You know, it was quick, but I think it showed that I'm a, I'm a late bloomer. I came from an unheralded place. I had, you know, high hopes and belief, but I also needed to adapt to the level of play and the speed, and the size. And so I, it took me a while, and I was able because the building blocks were there. I'd put in the work. I had the skills. Once I could kind of cope with the physicality of, of Division One basketball my skills could come through. And so that's the same as the NBA. You know, I went through four years of college where mm -hmm. I got myself to a great position. I went to the NBA. I think people realize, you know, in Phoenix when I was there, like I could really play at a lot of skills, but I also had Kevin Johnson, Jason Kidd, and, you know, was still learning and figuring it out. And, you know, then I had some injuries in my back. And so you go through these ups and downs in this process, but I was able to persevere because of that resilience, that grit, right? Like I never would give away days. I would, I'm going to work today. You yep. know, I never like, well, I'm not going to shoot before practice today. Yep. No, I ever, it's like non-negotiable. I'm shooting before I'm shooting after I might shoot tonight. Um, you know, working on my game, whatever it may be. So, um, that resilience carries you through the ups and downs and the adversity you face and it spits you out on the other side way ahead. Um, and I think that's kind of like the, the biggest factor in my story is that I went from one scholarship offer to, you know, being one of the best players in the NBA because I never gave away days at any stage. How do you think about opportunity? Because for me, you know, hearing that story, you took advantage of that opportunity of the knee scope back in college. Mm -hmm. um, you had the foresight in your position with the Suns to then move over to Dallas where then boom, you became a perennial all-star. Um, is, it, is it fair to say, to advise the listeners that in sports and business, like work really hard, which we know is consistent, the opportunity will come. Not mm -hmm. sure how it will look. Yeah. It could be injury. It could be you get yeah. traded. Opportunity will come. Sure. Because the flip side and the fear in many of us, myself included, is like, what if I never catch that break? Right. Well, I think you can't worry about that. That's uncontrollable. Yeah. I think you have to have faith that if you work every day and you prepare, what do they say when preparation meets opportunity? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you, you just worry about the preparation. Just prepare and so that when that opportunity, if or when it comes, you're ready. Um, and I think the preparation, thankfully, also creates belief. So when that opportunity comes, if you've prepared and you have belief because of all that preparation, you know, good things are largely going to happen. And sometimes you have to knock the door down and sometimes you have to be patient. I went through, I mean, we're, we're skipping a lot of steps here where I went through a lot of adversity, you know, in Dallas where I had a bad back at the start and didn't play great and, and lacked confidence and wasn't very fluid at times. Um, and I, and I had a hard time. And I think Nelly, my coach, Don Nelson, who's in the hall of fame, 
you know, he, he had a different approach and it wasn't that easy for me at first. He wanted me to score. And I was like, I, that's not, not what I want to do. I want to make people better and, and pass the ball. And I think he, he finally won it. I don't know if he articulated it well at first, but he kind of finally won where he was like, you need to be aggressive. And it finally got in my head. And me being aggressive made me more of a double threat, which made my passing and my scoring ability complement each other and make the defense struggle to figure out which one I was leaning on and so it made our team better because I was putting more pressure on the defense but it wasn't like I wasn't like I need to get 20 points tonight whereas Nelly was like go get 20 points yeah. kind of thing and I was like God, that's that's not the philosophy that's not my core values you know like my values are to play the game the right way and he was like fuck the right way he's like yeah. I want you to shove it down their throat because you can yeah. uh, you know and so I, that was hard for me because I I, I I didn't like that because it was going against this traditional view of the game that I subscribed to, which was to be a pure point guard. Yeah. And now we're talking professional, right? Where it's mm -hmm. cutthroat. It's a career. Sure. Guys get cut all the time yeah. for not hitting their performance metrics. Were you at all worried at like, hey, my coach here wants me to score. Yeah. It's not what I want to do. Right. Do I have to become a scorer or am I going to lose my job? You know, I, I, wasn't, I was more worried like that I was going to get healthy because yeah, I had the back issue. And, yeah. But once I figured that out, that I was going to get healthy, I was always obsessive about my training. So I, always, I just relied on that. I just stuck to that. That was like, one, it was a way of life that I enjoyed. You know, I loved that cycle of waking up in the morning, preparing, uh, giving it everything I have, refining going to bed, looking forward to getting up in the morning and doing it all over again. You know, like I, that's the way I wanted to live. So that was, that was going to be there. And if I kept stuck with that and I got a little bit better every day, look where I could be in a year or two years, three years, I wasn't going to stagnate. I was going to get better for sure. Yeah. That was my way of thinking. So I continued to grow and I continued to find, you know, ways to overcome the adversity. There's a time in Dallas where I really wasn't moving well. I got booed every time I touched the ball in a home game. Mm. Um, you know, in those moments though, they, they, they build that resilience muscle, that, that grit, and, or they can break you. And for me, those were always moments that I think built my resolve rather than tore it down. Yeah, did injury, you mentioned your back, did that add to your mm. resilience muscle as well? And then what type of advice do you give people in way of prehab and rehab? Mm. That is one of the big variables in sports. Sure. We can do our best to prepare. You and I have had this conversation yeah. over text, and, and then all of a sudden the uncontrollable sure. happens. You control what you can control. I came in the league where we we were compared to where we are now. We were prehistoric, and I was second year in the league. I my back issue, which was congenital, surfaced, and I went back home to Vancouver and I worked with uh, two physios. One who was the Canadian national soccer team physio, who my brother played for the national team, and his understudy who played for soccer for Canada. Um, Rick Celebrini became a huge factor in my career and, and teaching me how to move properly and teaching me to prevent injury or overcome injury because uh, he had a brilliant feel for movement and, and rehab, prehab, whatever it may be. So I got lucky that I got to work with Rick so closely for many, many years. Um, and he, so he's basically, basically, I feel in some ways I got, albeit a bit bastardized, a, ma a master's degree um, in movement, in preparation, in performance, uh, in recovery. I mean, things that I still do to this day to manage my body so that I can stay as active as I want. And I just feel so lucky that I came across him. 
What about the conflict now in sports? And if, if you haven't noticed already, this is, this is really helpful for me and one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast. But the, the conflict in sports, and you had mentioned your self-esteem on the floor uh, and then injury, is that as an athlete, you're expected to have a lot of confidence. If you express in some cases, at least in bad cultured teams, that you're lacking confidence, you're basically asking to be benched mm. or like the, the historic sure. way of many uh, rigid coaches sure. might say, well, then you're not cut out for this game. Uh, and then with injury, obviously disclosing injury uh, is a sign of weakness. Sure. It means you might be shelved and all that kind of stuff. Did you, were you challenged with that or did you always find it easier for you to just like reach out for help? Yeah. You know, my biggest thing, I think to a fault, I probably played when I was hurt too many times in my mm-hmm. career um, and stubbornness. I think you have to be willing sometimes to say, wait a minute, let's, what's a, like not this month or these three weeks or these six weeks, you know, like if I'm carrying this injury for three to six weeks and my performance dips a little bit, is that worth it? Or do I need to look at, a, at an eight to 12 to five month period and say, how is my net performance going to be better? And is that to continue playing, get through it or to take the time needed off to, to rebound from it and to come back better. And, you know, I think the psychological part of it, I think there's strength in being honest and insecure. Yep. You know, if you're honest about the way you feel, it doesn't mean you don't want to play. It just means, look, I'm carrying this injury. I'm not feeling great. I'm not moving well. I want to play at my best. I'm willing to keep playing at this level, but we have to have an honest conversation with the mm-hmm. staff and the coaches to say, what's the best outlook for our team? Is it that I keep playing at a B, B minus, or do I need to take some time off so I'm playing at an A, A plus when it really matters or for a longer period of time? There, there has to be integration in a, in a locker room. There has to be integration in a culture and there has to be integration in a performance staff. And, you know, you can't just leave it to the athletes or to the performance staff or to the coach or the general manager. There has to be integration in my mind. And there's nothing wrong with having your ups and downs mentally, being insecure at times. It's about knowing how do you get out of it. And my, your strategy is to find that sharpness. Like, how do you find that sharpness back in your, your body and your game where you're able to play the game at the speed that it's effortless instead of everything's a struggle? You know, when everything's a yeah. struggle, your confidence is going to waver. So you, to get that back, you have to train to get that back. And it might take you three steps of the ladder to get back to that sharpness, but you have to plan out like, okay, a period of time I'm going to spend, you know, reintroducing those movements. This next period, I'm going to try to ramp them up where they're more dynamic, unpredictable, and against competition. And then third, it's converting it to actual speed of play. And so you have to kind of have, I think, a broader picture of how you're going to get there instead of like leaving it to chance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'll be back in three weeks. And for better or worse, you're back in three weeks. Well, you never took the, the correct steps. You didn't transition from one step to the other at the appropriate time. You know, I think there has to be some thought that goes into it. And if you're lucky, you're in a club that is integrated and looks out for the best interest of the player overall instead of like right now, today. You know, I get it if it's the end of the season, you know, it's the playoffs and it's like, yeah. well, you play or you don't play. And if he's giving us something, you go and then you sacrifice. But if we're talking about in a longer scope, in the middle of the start, even like towards the end of the year where you can recover, you have to have an integration and a way of dealing with these things that's holistic instead of just like by the whim of people's personalities and guesswork. Yeah, and I love the integration of honesty and openness. And no matter what we're talking about in sports, business, life, those are so core to healthy communication, healthy partnerships, Mm -hmm. strong culture Mm -hmm. and team. Um, One of the things that uh, jumps out at me was your then transition from Dallas to Phoenix. And it was around, a lot of it was around just the contracts, the nuts Mm -hmm. and bolts of the terms. 
And I've loved the way you've described this. So I'll do my best to just like ask the question and get out of the way. But there's so much conversation around contracts in sports and how large they are, particularly in basketball and football. And the, to the public eye, they miss under like, well, this guy's getting paid or this guy's getting paid $40 million. Why are they asking for 47? Why are they asking for 55? And you pull yourself out of sports and say in any industry, right, if you're an earner and there are, um, there are certain benchmarks that you've hit and data and your peers suggest that you deserve this comp, then you should go for it. Why in sports and We'll get to the, mm-hmm. to the social activism and sure. social media and stuff, sure. which, which I, I love about you too. But specifically this contract, you signed with the Suns. Mark Cuban didn't want to match that, that contract. That's why you did it. Mm-hmm. You probably caught a lot of flack for it. And similarly mm-hmm. in L.A., how do you kind of articulate that process yeah. and how athletes have to handle that? Well, I think that view of like it's an antiquated view of the dumb athlete, right? And yep. you – well, you're just an athlete. You're just a jock. Why do you, you should shut up and just accept that you have a lucky life and you get to make a bunch of money. But the reality is we've evolved and we realize that we are, we are earners. We, 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 we work at our craft and we perform and we're a part of a business model. So just because you're a quote unquote, um, sportsman who plays a skill instead of necessarily was trained with a book, it, you're still a part of a, of an industry at whatever level. And so, you know, if you don't take what you're worth, someone else is taking it, whether it's another player or an owner, why does the owner, you know, get a bigger piece of the pie if you're the product, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, you know, it, it it would be crazy and it would be difficult, but what would, if the, you know, 50 best NBA players, you know, let their contracts expire and started a league, they would severely damage the NBA. Mm-hmm. Right, so they own, they have a lot of power, right? And so, the other thing about it is that you can't. The only way to really to really have respect in pro sports is monetarily, because if you have loyalty to, to an organization, for example, like if I had a with the Dallas situation, they were basically offering me half yep. of what Phoenix was offering me. You know, that's a big discrepancy. <laughs> To, to be loyal, to say, well, I'm still making millions, I'll stay here anyways, and then he trades you at Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah. So you have no safeguard against that. I mean, so, like, you can't just forego a $30 million discrepancy, so to speak, uh, and risk the chance that you could get traded, and then you've just made a decision for the betterment of a club that didn't respect you. It's just impossible. And I'll even add to that is that sports, unlike the other industries, which which – you did a great job of, of comparing us to in the way that we're thinking about our contracts is that sports will end mm-hmm. because our, our, our most valuable asset is our performance, our mm-hmm. athleticism, our ability sure. to move up and down the floor. Sure. And, and so there's a finite period of time where you can earn in mm-hmm. sports. That's different than yeah. if you and I were to right. start out of the gates right. in business. Right. And it's a capitalist society. You know, we, we, uh, we evangelize about how great capitalism is, yet an athlete is supposed to, you know, shut up and never talk about money. You know, nowadays I think a part of what's helping is that athletes are realizing that you do have short careers, so they're using their brand equity to have second careers or to make their primary career more, more robust. And I think people are starting to understand, and, and that view is changing, especially with social media, where the entrepreneur is now an athlete in its own right, so to speak. You know, it's like uh, it's this new breed of wealthy people that are 
clever and thoughtful and creative like an athlete is, Mm -hmm. you know, in its own right, just on a, on a playing field. And so I think it's changing, but there's still that, that old school view that some people just haven't transitioned to the modern age. And, you know, we, I have to thank all those guys that played before us that, you know, that went through that era and made those slight changes and persevered and gave us the opportunity to, to earn the fruits of their work. I mean, you could look at it another way. I mean, I, I, I mean, if I, you if you compared my performance to other athletes, I was probably underpaid. But I never once looked at it that way. Because you, you get what you get, and you should be thankful for what you get, and you work for what you get, but don't ever compare to someone else. I, I think that's a, a losing game. It's a distraction. Yep. Um, it's also, it's not only a distraction from what you're trying to do, it's a distraction of your personality and mentality. You know, if you're worrying about things like that, you, you know, You've taken your eye off the ball. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think, too, as long as you're honest and open when you negotiated your yeah, contract, sure. you can rest on that and say, hey, this is what I decided to yeah. do. And, and I think, again, going back to the honest piece is that be careful for the athletes and even the, the entrepreneurs that are structuring their deals with investors and such. Like, Be as open and honest as possible. If they're the right fit for you, if they're the right team, you can tell them to the extent of what you think you can earn what may be too loft, you won't. And, and they'll check you and you can check them. Uh, but it's when we kind of back our way into a situation where we can start to fester sure. in resentment. Right. And and then when your peer gets paid more, then it's like, well, I, I yeah. should have gotten more out of yeah. the gate. So it kind of goes back to yep. that open communication. Yep, you have to, when it's done, it's done, right? And you move forward or you don't get involved in the first place. And a lot of times, you know, I would say like my discrepancy in earning compared to maybe someone that out-earned me but underperformed me, it's timing, you don't. You can't control that. Yep. Like you can't always control that. You can't always, you know. Look at the NBA salary cap two summers ago. Guys were getting twenty million that would to this summer are gonna would get six, seven, yep. right? And so you just never know. It's it's no one's fault, you know. And I'm glad those guys got their twenty. I think it's really important that you you respect that you're a businessman. You respect what you have control over, but you and you make peace with it. And you when it's done, it's done, and you move on and you focus on your craft. But you also don't glance and you don't complain and you don't take your eye off the ball because you're worried about the timing or someone else's situation. We're all doing fine. We're all doing, in fact, way, way better than fine. Uh, of course, try to refine and reflect and make your situation better at all times. But that happens by being on top of your craft. You know? yep. and that's where the focus should be. The rest of it comes off of your success on the, on the court. Yep. And you were one of the first athletes and why it's exciting to to sit with you um, to actually start investing and exploring entrepreneurship and and media while you were still playing, Mm -hmm. which is rare. Um, And we'll touch on that. But to to be done with the NBA, what's done is done. I I do have a few questions um, with regard to the way that you process. Um, So the first is ingredients to a great team. And I was lucky last year to have Sam Walker on his chief editor of the Wall Street Journal who wrote the captain class. Mm. And he talks about the value of, of, of a singular captain, unconventional captain, more soft-spoken. He calls it the, the water carrier of the team across the best team sports of all time. So the Barcelonas, the Spurs, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he mm. takes one from each. He has certain metrics. And it was, it was really fascinating. Great book and great podcast. What are your thoughts through all of the experiences you had? Have you ever distilled it down to like, this is what makes a great team? Mm. And, and a great team may not mean a championship. Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, a great team is maximizing its potential. And part of that's in the market, you know, recruiting and finding the best players. And part of that's in, you know, 
building that having them one play to the best of their ability individually and collectively. And there's a lot of ingredients in that as the coach, his ability to communicate, his ability to teach staff's ability to support his vision. Um, and then there's the personality of the players. And, you know, I have, a, I have an ownership stake in, in Vancouver Whitecaps in the MLS and in Real Mallorca, the Spanish soccer yep. team. We're in the third division and, and I'm much more involved in Mallorca. Um, in a, on the day-to-day side of it. And the, the biggest thing that I try to impact on our staff there, our CEO, our sporting director, our head of our academy, is what are, we worked like what, on building our core values and continuing to build them, continuing to refine them and to challenge them, um, and then framing every decision based around those core values. So if one of your core values is honesty and there's a really talented player that's available, but he's a bit of a phony, the decision's made. We stick to our core values. We play the long game. We try to bring in people that are going to take our project in the direction we want it to go. So we have control. And playing that long game allows you to do that. Yeah. I think you see that, you know, obviously in hindsight, but when you see a Belichick or a Popovich, you know, they've played the long game. They've, they've decided what their core values are, what mean the most to them, and they've stuck with it, and they've never wavered. They've never gone, but that guy's just so talented. Let's bring him in. They might say... Our team can absorb this one character because our culture is so good, but they're not going to say like, let's just break our, you know, our, our vision and our core values to bring in anyone because they have talent. So I think personally that pers- core values, what do you stand for? What do you want to admit, admit um, to the fans, to the leagues, your opposition, um, and then the personalities that are able to make that. And, and people say, like, how do you build a culture? Well, one way is to bring in good cultural people. Right, so you always got to think of who am I bringing in? What kind of personality do they bring to the table? What kind are are they? You know, I always say I always say to the New York guys, give me fighters. I don't care if I have the best guy. Give me a guy that's gonna not gonna point fingers, mm-hmm. not gonna complain about doing work, is gonna love it, gonna be there early, stay late, and fight and scrap. I would take that eleven of those over eleven stars. It's like the Atletico Madrid team. Exactly. Yeah. A few years ago, made a few Champions League, a couple of Champions League finals. Yeah. I think they did. They win a La Liga. I mean, yeah. you know, they they definitely had some star players, but I mean, much more grit and uh, undervalued assets than some of the top clubs. Where did you learn about structuring teams and thinking about core value and mission and really being explicit about that? That's like business school stuff. Mm. Uh, totally informally, just gleaning? listening, yeah. listening, yeah. gleaning, watching groups work, watch being on teams your whole life, um, watching what can really hurt a team, what can really help a team, um, you know, listening to other people's success. Uh, you know, I think the Spurs have a, a handbook, so to speak. It might be more than a handbook, but you know, I think they talk about can can a guy care? You know, can he really genuinely care for his teammates is, is one like thing you could extract from the whole handbook. And so that's a personality thing, right? They're looking at that person's mentality and personality. Um, you know, I th- I've heard that the, the high, high end, highest end of the Navy SEALs, you know, they're, they're evaluating, can a, can, I think they're saying the same thing, can he love? Hmm. So can he love the person next to him? And you know, that's, that's not a how, how, what's his 40 time, how good a shooter he is, what kind of marksman he is with a rifle. That's, okay, we're, we're all in a similar boat there, but when push comes to shove and things on the line, can he care about his teammates or is he going to go insular and go rogue? You know, where at times you can't see from the outside he's gone rogue, but he's, tor- he's stretched the fabric of yep. a unit that makes that unit 5% less successful, you know, 
25% less successful. You know, we're talking about units that go in to get bin Laden, right? Yep. Like the best of the best, the most qualified, the most talented, but they're valuing can he love. Yep. That's exactly right. And I've, I haven't gotten a chance to meet Coach Popovich, but John Elliott works with the Spurs. And so he tells me similar stories. That's one of them. And then I had a chance to interview Randy Hetrick, who is a SEAL Team 1 lieutenant and founder of TRX, now CEO, went to GSB. He agrees, too, on that love. The, the other thing that they both share, which I find fascinating, is identifying people who are willing to or capable of making fun of themselves, yeah. have self-deprecation, yeah. to be humble enough to say, like, this isn't all yeah. about me, and I can actually yeah. laugh at what I just yeah. did. The healthy ego, healthy uh, self-talk, healthy, um, you know, your self-esteem. Yep. Um, you know, it can be really distorted if you can't laugh yourself. I had a veteran, my rookie year, Joe Klein, who was a journeyman center, a great guy, um, not a great player, but played in the league a long time. And he said to me, Rook, you want to make it in this league, you got to be able to laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was like... Yeah, it's one of those statements that when you're 22 years old, you're kind of thinking, well, I kind of think if I can get to the basket, I'm going to make it in this league. You know, if I can make threes, I'm going to make it in this league. But then you're like, I, something struck a chord with me. And I was like, I get that. I get why. Like your ability to assimilate to a situation, to a group, to work with other people, to disarm them, to show them that it's not all about you, to not be insular or, you know, or me first. Like there's so many ancillary qualities that come off of just being able to be self-deprecating and laugh at yourself. Popovich always says, you know, I want guys that are over themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and it's invaluable. And it's not just because, just because, oh God, I want guys that are, able to have a laugh it's because it can it can bring a room together it can disarm a room and it allows people to trust you you know at the end of the day like i want to know someone that tells me when i ask someone a question i want to know someone that says to me i can't answer that instead of somebody that has to give me an answer to everything because they're insecure and they feel like they have to prove their worth at all times you know the smartest people i've ever met have no problem saying you know i, I can't answer that i don't know the, i don't know the reason for that yep. right and then you see the other people that are smart but they dilute their impact because they have to know it all you know they yeah, have to be I the think center that's of attention the challenge in sports is a lot of athletes uh, are taught and i look at myself directly it took me to probably 28 29 when i still started doing some real deep self-work is that you don't have to have the answer in sports and many times we're taught we have to mm. right and uh howard schultz who i reference often as the ceo of starbucks says the most underrated value characteristic of any leader is the ability to ask for help mm. and in sports coaches are looked to to have the answers the best uh tandems that i've found are, are coaches that ask the players players that coaches and they kind of bridge that gap mm -hmm. of hierarchy sure because they're they, they're egoless yeah. in a way absolutely yeah uh, I work as a consultant for the Golden State Warriors, and that's largely the culture that Steve Kerr has created there. You know, Bob Meyer is a general manager, and Steve have a great relationship. Steve and the players have a great relationship. He shares ownership. You know, they it's not this is how we do it. You know, you shut up, you know, put up or shut up. It's how 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 is the best way to skin the cat here, guys? You know, I want to hear your impact impact. I want to or input. I want to hear Bob's. I want to discuss it and and create an environment where no stone is unturned, and we'll get to the place where all of us find a common ground that we okay. This is the decision. Let's go at it this way. And and that's that's a daily evolution. Yeah. Right? That's not like start of the year we decide and we go because shit happens. Yeah. Things change. Adversities come up. Injuries. 
dynamics. Um, and you have to be willing to have that structure and that culture to be able to absorb those deficiencies. And uh, so I've learned a lot from Steve in that respect. Yeah, Steve's amazing. And, and frankly, whether it's Steve or Phil Jackson at times and Bill Belichick is because they're so successful, they're often paired with a really talented player, Tom mm, Brady, sure. Michael Jordan, Kobe. Um, and, and, and Steve Kerr's got his whole group of Steph Curry and you name it. And, and then they faced the, the public squander. Steve did last year when he was out for surgery, maybe it was two years ago and Golden State went on one, some 14 games straight under coach Walton. And everyone was like, see, this is a team, uh, that can function without Steve and maybe Steve's not that valuable. What they missed is that the best leaders in the world create a culture and a structure so yeah. that if they want to go on vacation or something happens sure. to get hurt, it continues to function right. just as is. Absolutely. And so it was actually more of a, of a compliment yeah. to the way that Steve's built that team. Yeah, it's a pretty simplistic view to be like, oh, they don't need him, right? When the truth is that he's created an environment yeah. that is greater than him. That's the ultimate for a coach, right? That you've created an empowered staff and energy and cultural fabric that can survive your absence for a period of time. And he wasn't completely absent. You know, his presence was still felt. Uh, he, he's, he remains in pain and, and going through difficult times. But, um, you know, he's just such a wonderful leader and visionary person. And he's played for Pop and he played for Phil. And he learned a lot from them. But he shapes it with his own personality. Uh, he is self-deprecating. He is highly competitive and intelligent at the same time. Um, those are good ingredients. Yeah, Steve is uh, is one of the best out there. And, and we think about the way that players have to be egoless. And to your point, it should be coaches as well. Yeah. And it creates that, that great duo. Your post-career, you've been probably busier than, than as you were playing. And maybe it's a part of, of how you like to operate. Mm. Um, involved in basketball as, as a consultant for Golden State, GM of Canada's national team. Mm. You still keep up in an endorsement portfolio, the soccer ownership that you had mm -hmm. mentioned with the Vancouver Whitecaps, and then Mallorca, and then you're a philanthropist, you're involved in media. How are you positioning yourself mm. if you're trying to coalesce your day-to-day? -day? I know you said it's really busy and you choose to work out to sure. try and stay focused, but do you ever take a step back and say like, okay, what's, what yeah. do we got here? Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely been a challenge for me. I think... You know, for, you know, I started a lot of this stuff before I finished playing. And mm -hmm. so, which was positive. And at the same time, I think it was um, to little effect. You know, I think it was, I enjoyed it. I had some success doing some of these things, but it didn't really amount to like, okay, this is where I'm going when I'm done playing. And I think the biggest part of that was it is a hard thing to do to be a relatively young man and give up your obsession and say it's time to go. And so it took me two years really to get from like when I stopped playing to where I was actually balanced and okay with it. And that's a lot of the psychology we talked about earlier, being able to communicate, being open and honest, being able to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm not being careful of denial. I'm great. Right. That's the easy thing. We're athletes. I'm great. I've been through a lot worse because you are, you wake up, you go do what you want. You got a lot of freedom. You got, you got your health, relative couldn't play anymore but you got your health you have so much to do and learn and kids and everything's great and opportunities every day people knocking at your door sending emails whatever it is that you can just gloss everything 
or throw everything under the table or under the rug, you know, I think what happens is you end up burying it somewhere in your stomach Mm -hmm. and it still lives there. And so for me, I I had to be open and honest with myself and realize I'm, I'm going through a transition here. This is difficult. No matter if most days are great, there's still something in my underbelly that I'm going to have to deal with at some point. And maybe I can't connect with it right now, but I have to be open to connecting it when those times come and they might be tiny moments that I connect and I let go and I say, it's okay. And I forgive myself or I say, you know, this is, this is, it's okay to feel this way and, and, and to be upset and to be sad and be emotional and at the same time have maybe a little bit of regret, whatever it may be, you have to be open to feeling it, recognizing it, being aware of it, and then letting it go saying, it's okay. I can let this go. I don't have to like harbor this or deny it, which is not letting it go. Right. You're keeping it in there if you deny it. So I went through that process, which was really helpful. Um, you never quite get a hundred percent from that process. We're always going to miss mm-hmm. what we did. You know, I don't get to drive downtown every other night and play in front of 20,000 people. And for someone who doesn't love to necessarily love the attention, that's, that's a lot of adrenaline to oh. replace. And so you got that, you got the, the cycle of preparation and performance. You've got the teammates, the travel, the excitement of playing meaningful games, uh, having it on the line, you know, like it, it matters if I play well tonight, like that's, it's gone, you know, in my soccer games, my beach volleyball games, my tennis games, it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Like I have no fans that are like riding on this. Uh, I don't have an owner. I don't have a, a, a teammates, a, you know, so there's, it's, it's a different life, but it doesn't mean there's not reward in a million things. Most importantly, being a father. Um, but then, so where do I go from here? And, and so I think for me, like I'm, I'm definitely leaning, I'm not, I'm committed to media and creating a, a, a sports media company of sorts. And I'm not sure exactly how it looks yet, but I'm getting a pretty, pretty more, a pretty clearer picture of where where i want to go with that um which is exciting uh but at the same time it's a long process mm-hmm. you know i i don't necessarily i don't say this is how i'm going to do it i say this is i think where we're going and let's keep refining along that path but be open to learning and figuring out especially in our world that's changing every year yep you know yep. so i i and then the rest of it is comp- compartmentalized so the soccer ownership is a small part of my my week um, I'd love for it to be more, but when you, th- when you, when you factor in the fact that our team's in the Mediterranean, it's really hard and it's more about being supportive to, and investing in that human capital that we've hired. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, you know, you can start to see the picture my foundation, Jenny runs my foundation for, oh, the guy's gotta be 14 years now, does a great job and she's pretty autonomous, you know, and I'm here to add high level, you know, input. Um, so you can see where my hours starting to lean and it's really starting to lean towards sports media and uh, I'm enjoying it. Well, when you look at your deals before we, we go to media, the, the deals that you look at, the ownership group, um, you know, the gyms that you had started mm. to, do you look at them as maybe a traditional investor would in, in ROI and, and, mm. and money in and where the sources and uses of the capital? Sure. Or, or as you said, with soccer, because of your lineage, it's like, this is really authentic mm-hmm. to me and I'm get behind, get behind sure. the right people, the advice to athletes, right? And talking to me and others who do an investing as well as you know, we don't yeah. have our business school sure. uh, graduate program. We haven't spent time as junior associates with VCs sure. or other investors. How do you look at deals sure. that make you be successful? Well, let me, let me be clear from the start. You know, I've made a good living playing basketball. So 
I, and I'm not a person that needs a ton, a ton of money. I mean, here I, I, of course, like if you look at my life uh, in a bubble, you'd say, "Oh, come on, you you live a very good life, a very expensive life." But I'm not one of those people that needs this crazy lifestyle. You know, I'm pretty simple. Um, you know, yes, I've earned enough to have a, a an expensive home that, but it's a simple home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm able to travel. Um, so I have the luxuries that I want, the luxury of time to put into sports media, being a dad that wakes up every morning, gets his kids off to school, picks them up, takes them to their activities, basically a glorified Uber driver nowadays. But, uh, um, you know, the, I, I have, I'm, I'm designing a life that I, that I want and that I can enjoy and thrive in, which is a constant work in progress, but I'm, I'm enjoying, love my life. Um, so having said that I'm risk adverse because I don't need to make more money. I just need to basically, uh, preserve what I have and enjoy the fruits of it and, and, and live a great life, thrive at my life, not necessarily at my portfolio just keep my portfolio in a positive place. Um, so I, I, I would say as an investor, I look for projects that make a lot of sense because they're right down my wheelhouse. You know, mm-hmm. soccer ownership is a passion play. It's not going to sink me at the level I got in, but I was able to make a big impact in bringing the MLS to Vancouver, my home province, which gives me an enormous sense of pride. I'm also a super fan of a team that I have a part of the ownership in. It's fantastic. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Mallorca, when's, how many times in your life as a retired basketball player who loves soccer, someone to ask you to come and be the bridge between ownership and management of a Spanish soccer team that has a history of being in the Champions League in the last 10, 15 years um, in a beautiful part of the world. So this is an opportunity I look at and I go... I, uh, you know, I can risk at this level to be involved in this. And if it goes belly up, it's not the end of the world. And at the same time, I, this is living a dream. So I, I, you know, I'm, you know, in, as it, if I'm called an investor, it's, it's probably, uh, unfair. I, I, I'm an opportunist more so, or I can get involved in things that, you know, maybe add to my life in a positive way. You know, maybe there's some financial gain at the end of the rainbow, but maybe there's not. But it's more about that process and how can it add to my life and my enjoyment. Um, that's way more important to me. Yeah, I think that's really great, too. And in, in understanding, hey, we look at some of these athletes that have created a, an exorbitant amount of wealth for themselves. Mm. And, and to have that realization that let me let me figure this out, maintain it, then figure out what portion of that where I can have some type of small risk profile mm. and then spend that on something that yeah. I really like. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's really it, great to hear. You know, it's a, it's a lesson. The, the biggest lesson you could tell an NBA rookie who come, walks into a bunch of money and maybe doesn't have the life skills to understand what that means in the course of your life and also what that means in a day-to-day, the biggest thing you could teach them is have a budget. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to a risk profile. Yep. Right? Like, here's my cake my pie how much of it can i do i need to live comfortably and and for a rainy day or adversity and how much of it can i play with that might add a lot of value to my life might add a lot of education inspiration um it might add value in in different ways not just monetarily so media uh, that makes a ton of sense to me for two reasons we talked about, or you talked about, the you know, going downtown and playing every other night in front of 20,000 people and playing for your owners and your teams and how great that is. And so there's the attention that, that you and I like to lean into. In media, you're trading on attention, mm-hmm. which, which gives you that spike. Sure. Uh, the other thing is just like you're a thoroughbred assister, right? And, and like <laughs> in media, 
you know, you're, you're going to assist others in telling mm-hmm. their stories. So it feels really right to me. And I think what, what jumps out too is, is the way you've gone about it thus far and, and the authenticity of, of your approach and how you feel. And then what, what's most relevant right now and current uh, is the shut up and dribble mm-hmm. that we're hearing mm-hmm. um, from Laura Ingram and, and, and the conversations that have um, begin to unfold more and more since the president-elect in 2016. But what I think few people remember or realize, and it certainly didn't miss us, was in 2003 you were doing a lot of uh, activism on behalf of players through what you believed, and you were one of the first to wear a shirt during the All-Star game that said, no war, shoot for peace, and you were called out early by Skip Bayless, and you know he's, I think, learned since then that you know kind of Steve Nash stick to basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you know, you were a part of this, certainly understand it culturally and the impact that it has now. Social media wasn't around then like it is now at all outside of Facebook and college. Um, so as you've seen that happen mm-hmm. and kind of advising some of these athletes, what are some things that they should be mindful of so that their message is not only clear but meaningful mm-hmm. and there's follow through? I think the most important thing is to have an informed opinion. So not just to be emotional, which is hard. You know, it's hard when we talked earlier about as an athlete, you know, that the psychology of being on balance and being under control because you're in a competitive, you have to be emotional to be successful, right? You have to ride your emotions. You have to control them to your benefit. And that's the same with issues in life. But if you fly off the handle, you know, and especially in today's social media world, it it can be painful. Um, So I would ask that anyone that wants to voice their opinion on matters, be informed if they're serious about it. Um... And then follow your, your passions. Like where, where do matters really mean something to you? Where does it really strike a chord? Because the passion will give you that energy to follow through um, and to make change or to be a voice for change. Um, so that, to me, those are the two things, have an informed opinion and, and follow your passion. Um, because that's hard. I mean, we, we could pick a million issues. Yep. Like, you know, I've, I've been vocal on, on Twitter recently about, uh, you know, guns and yep. gun violence and accessibility to weapons and, which is home, especially with kids. Yeah, it, well, kids or anyone, it's just life is, is more valuable than access to a weapon in my eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, And I know that's a little bit more complex for some people, and maybe because I come from a country that has much stricter gun laws, I see it from a different perspective. And so I, I don't, and, but sometimes I get emotional a little bit on Twitter with responses, and I, and I, I maybe instead of being, let, let's discuss this. I might stomp one or two times when I shouldn't, yep. you know, because it doesn't help. You know, you're just actually asking people to say, you know what, if you want to be that way, I'll stay this way. Whereas you should be talking, I should be saying to people, this is my background. This is where I come from. This is the perspective I have. Can, like, what can we agree on? Can we agree that something needs to change? You know, I think if, if we can agree on that, then let's start to decide what one thing that needs to change. And it doesn't have to be the, the all 10 that I want. It doesn't have to be all 10 that you want. What is one that we can both agree on? I think the first step is, does something need to change? And so I think there's uh, there's many ways, obviously, like look at the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And I'm not sure they were as different as history paints them to be, but you know, one was by any means necessary uh, as a generalization, and, and one was through peace and uh, all, all the things that Dr. King stood for. And so there's a million ways to go about it. I'm not saying that one way is better than the other, but I just think that those days are gone where the athlete should shut up and dribble. 
Um, just like athletes not being businessmen is gone and you're going to have some people out there that are antiquated or have these old school views that, you know, think stick to sports. Um, and you're going to have people that think athletes shouldn't talk about money. And I get, I don't, I'm not comfortable always with anyone talking about money, let alone myself. And I get that there's a part of the population that definitely doesn't want to hear an athlete talk about money, you know? So, but we have a voice and everyone, every citizen is entitled to their opinion and their voice. And if anything, democracy is built on those voices. And so it's, it's ironic or it's ridiculous that people are trying to, you know, quiet those voices when we live in a democratic society. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and the last question I'll ask you to, to kind of sum up uh, in a way advice to some of these younger athletes that are looking to become more informed um, or are looking at creating potentially an investment thesis or explore money in the door as a rookie, or how do I think about picking a major as an undergrad? Um, What, as as someone who's so articulate and thoughtful, where where are you aggregating what you know? Are there particular resources that you pull from? Is it online? Is it Twitter? Is it email newsletters, podcasts, in particular books? I definitely have gotten into podcasts, but I would say that traditionally my information comes from people meeting great people, learning, witnessing, watching. Um, you know, I'm, I, I like to read, but I'm not like a vociferous reader. I'm, I, just because I have four kids, you know, um, I, you know, I, I think that most of my life, uh, learnings are coming from experience and being out there and meeting great people and getting access to great people because of my success as a basketball player. And I've tried to learn as much. And let me put it this way. My eyes and ears have tried to be open because I'm curious Um, and that's probably where most of my information or thesis, so to speak, has come from, um, you know, look, I, kids nowadays, it's important to pass on and, and to give back, but like, look at our NBA players. They're pretty savvy. I Mm -hmm. mean, you could, if the things were going on when I was a 22 to 25 year old in the league were on camera phones, it was a different, it's a different (laughs) deal, right? But there wasn't. And so it was a different time. And then you adapt to your environment and our players have adapted and they're really good at it really good at it so they're savvy they look at themselves as brands they also recognize the importance of their craft and dominating on the court these guys are pretty impressive and and i i would say the nba is a leader in that respect in some ways but there's athletes all over the world doing great great things it's about having a vision it, look, why I'm excited about media and, sport, and sports media is because I like to build something. I built myself as a player, and that was a, such an invigorating passion and project. And so to build something is is what's exciting to me. I think people need to look at their lives like that, and, and athletes in particular need to look, how do I build myself to be the best player I can be holistically, personality, workmanship? teammate you know attention to details coachability all you know everything uh, presence with the fans uh with ownership management media like that's all a part of it right because if one of those if you struggle at one of those parts it could let you down somewhere else now obviously there's a weight to each and some are natural for you some aren't it's about finding that balance and that vision to be successful at all the pie and then the bigger pie is the life one right like how do you manage your finances how do you plan for the future how do you recognize that there's going to be a psychological toll from your career how do you plan to overcome that and how do you plan to find happiness after your career and success and invigoration and passion and so you know i think that our young guys are starting to think about these things earlier and earlier doing a good job of it but i think we have to share our experiences in order to allow them to see the best selves that they can be yep well steve i I think we built something great here i'm hoping we did 
I enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to meet someone. You're the first guest that answered resources as people, mm. and it's it's really powerful. So I think this was a, a, a very uh, very helpful, useful, measurable experience for me to take away a bunch of notes. And as I'm still playing, and then constantly getting the opportunity to meet folks like yourself that are evolved and thoughtful and and uh, continued success to you and uh, Thank you. looking forward to getting upstairs and looking uh, at some views. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I feel the same way about you. So thanks for having me on and thanks for all the, uh, you give me a lot of feedback, which I really appreciate. You got it. If you enjoyed Steve and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. We're both super active on social media, both Twitter and IG handles. I'm at Paul Rabel. He is at Steve Nash. And be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with Steve's fellow NBA star, Jeremy Lin, who has a sidebar. He's close with Steve. He's his sort of mentee, working with his physical therapy team right now in Vancouver as Jeremy recovers from his early season injury. This episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your pods, we're there. Also, when you find us, hit subscribe. Or if you haven't already and you've listened before, hit subscribe. Lots of gratitude for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes by visiting suitinguppodcast.com. Shout out Andrew and Neil for their work there in the hole. And of course, a special shout out to our show's sponsor, Mattress Firm. March is National Sleep Awareness Month. Did you know? Get yourself some quality rest with Mattress Firm, as I am trying to do. And remember, Steve's advice for any athlete or aspiring entrepreneur, declare your intention, say it out loud, write it down. Go ahead, say it out loud to yourself. And if you have a notepad right now, write it down, then go for it. Have a great week.